Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, these are some of the most special days of the whole year. Uh, the days between um, Yom Kippur and, and Sukkot. And, and the Medrash says that these are days without sin. Um, so we've got, we've, we've got in, in, in some ways the sort of like the, the perfect storm in, in, in the best sense of that, that, that phrase in terms of like all these great positives coming together. And the way that I would describe it, um, I mentioned that Erev, Erev Rosh Hashanah, right before Rosh Hashanah, I, I got a tour of um, JPL, which is the Jet uh, Propulsion Laboratory. And, and like from Houston, they send all the manned missions, manned missions to outer space, like to, Mar uh, to the moon and things like that. But like the, the Mars rover and all the unmanned things, those are all sent out from uh, JPL. So, and, and those are, you know, those, it's just wild what they've accomplished. I mean, if you think that we landed something on Mars, it's, 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 it's mind-blowing. Like, like, we're so used to just sort of like landing things places or shooting things up into outer space. But if you actually do the math and figure out what it means to have landed something on Mars, it's insane. It's insane that that happened. So, so anyway... As part of the tour, one of the things that they showed us was either the, the, probably a reproduction of, I think it was either the Curiosity or the Cassini, one of these um, spacecrafts. And what's so, what was so interesting about this spacecraft was how completely unaerodynamic it was. Now, if you look at cars, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of um, like uh, old cars and things like that. Uh, cars in general, but, but especially old cars. Just appreciating them as art objects. And I especially like the ones from like, like the Bulgemobiles from like the, the 30s and 40s. And by the way, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the Peterson Museum, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's worth going to, it's really cool. But you, when you look at them, you, you, can, you can experience them as sculptures because they really are art pieces, these things. And, and they, they should be in museums, like, next to, you know, all, all the rest of the art pieces. You know, they, they shouldn't just have to be in car museums. Um, the, the curves on them, like, the, the angles of the curves would, 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 would rival any, any curved figure in, in a Matisse, for instance. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're so unbelievable. Um, anyway. As, as cars sort of like, as the car industry evolved for better or for worse, they became increasingly um, aerodynamic, which means that they all looked basically now the same. They're just like these sleek boxes, basically. And all the, all the imagination, for the most part, are gone, you know, compared to the, what it looked like. But, but the reason is because of aerodynamics and fuel efficiency and everything like that. And, and so what was so interesting about these spacecraft at the at the JPL is how you've got these like long arms just sticking out there and these like like gangly antennas just kind of like sticking out there in the most unaerodynamic way now they did the math for us and they said that these spacecraft um, by the way we're still talking about the four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot <laughs> just in case you lost lost track of the subject here that these, these spacecraft travel, believe it or not, one million miles a day. One wow. million miles a day. Wow. Now, a, a billion is a thousand million. So, 
a thousand is basically, a thousand days is basically three and a half years, more or less. So that means every three and a half years, these, these travel a billion miles. And there's one, I'm forgetting the name of it, I think it may be the Mars rover, the first one, I'm not sure. But it's already traveled billions of miles. Now, when I was looking at this thing, and like I say, you have to picture something really gangly, right? Something very unaerodynamic. I asked the following question, which was, is there friction in space? Because if there's friction, it has to be eating away at these spacecraft, right? I mean, there's no way that it could travel that far, that fast, for that long, without sort of like being eaten by space, basically. And he said, well, no. Space is a frictionless environment. And so, in a frictionless environment, something can just sail and sail and sail and sail and sail. So, what does it mean that these days are days without sin? That means that on Yom Kippur, after, after Elul, after Rosh Hashanah, after Yom Kippur, we're just launched. We're absolutely launched. And you can just sail and sail and sail and sail. Now one of the one of the reasons why these are called days without sin is because, and this is very interesting, because we have so much to do. You see? Not that because we are finally have nothing to do. That's that's not it. That's not it. And again, that's this big counterintuitive thing that we who have grown up in, in Western civilization, which sort of like prizes and worships leisure time, right, as the greatest ideal that a person can aspire to, right? Like, you know, in, 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 there used to be a phrase, it's an old-fashioned phrase, you never hear it anymore, but it was considered a great compliment to introduce someone as a man of leisure. <laughs> He said, he's a man of leisure. <laughs> you know, somehow, he's, he, how good is he? He's so good, he doesn't have to do anything. See, that's such an un-Torah-like construct, right? So here we're in these days of, you know, days without sin, and, and they're the busiest days. They're actually the busiest days, especially if you're holding down a job, to be able to build a sukkah, to be able to find your arbaminim, your, your, to, to be able to cook all the meals, and it's a three-day, two, three-day yuntifs. That's a lot of shopping, a lot of cooking, a lot of building, a lot of running around, you know, and then you have to find schach, right, which is, you know, the covering for the sukkah. God willing, we'll talk about more, more of that later. So there is so much to do. There is so much to do. But that's precisely it. That's precisely it, because, because, you see, remember, that's what creates this fictionless environment. And then, you see, what's so great is, and, and I, I appreciate, I, I like this thought, you know, this is a new thought for me anyway, which is, but I, I, I like just the simplicity of this, which is that after Yom Kippur, what's the first thing that we're commanded to do? Build a house. You know, like, we, we're, we're so kind of like locked into this notion of a sukkah, and these are the halakhas of a sukkah, and this, is, this makes it a sukkah, this doesn't make it a sukkah, but, but let's just take five steps back for a moment. You just finish Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, God says, 
build a house. Like, how great is that? Like, populate, populate the entire globe with these dwelling places, Amen. right? Like, and, and live in it. Remember, the, 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 the mitzvah, or, or one of the mitzvahs, is to actually live in the sukkah. And so, so, so what that means is that anything that you would normally do, read the newspaper, take a phone call, like, um, you know, work on the computer, what, watch TV even. What, what, whatever it is that you do, ideally, if you can figure out a way to do that in a sukkah, then that's, that's the ideal. So the idea is to live in it. So again, let's put all of these things together. You see, on Rosh Hashanah, we're, we're saying that Hashem is king. We're acknowledging the fact that, as, as, as Rabbi Freeman put it so beautifully, you see, there, there are ways to look at the world. And, and I, I feel particularly close to this thought because as, as someone who's part of my, my job is to tell stories, right? To construct stories. We live in this world and everyone has this, um, this, this choice, basically. Do you want to view the history of the world, your own personal life, as an unfolding story, as a narrative that's evolving, that has meaning to it? or as just a random set of data points, right? That you are imposing some sort of structure on, if you're even doing that. And, and that's, that, that's sort of like a dividing line of like, what kind of person are you? Who are you? What are you? What do you think this world is? Do you think a, that you are in the middle of a story that's being told and that your life is one of the narrative threads of this story. I mean, imagine this. Let, let me tell you something. When you do like a, a half-hour uh, comedy, say, right, a, a, an episode, you usually have what's called an A story, a B story, and then maybe sometimes a C story. So the A story is the main story. Then the B story is like what's going on with the neighbors, say, right? You check in a couple of times and there's some comedic twist there, right? And then maybe you have a C story, which is even less than that, which is maybe just two, two scenes of that, just like a beginning and an end of that, right? How many storylines is God telling right now in the world? <laughs> trillions and trillions and trillions. But not only just trillions and trillions right now, but imagine like you are your parent's child. Right? You are your grandparents' grandchild. You are your great-grandparents' great-grandchild. So there are narratives, and there are super-narratives, then there's, like, when you just cut to the chase during Shimona Esrei, Elokei Abraham, Elokei Yitzchak, you just, you just, like, leapfrog all the way to the beginning of the process, right? Or on Rosh Hashanah, we do a super leapfrog. We go right to the sixth day of creation with the creation of the first human beings, right? And we're tying ourselves to that. But in every one of these things, what we're saying is there is this very cogent, very clear, very real story that's being told. So, so Rosh Hashanah... We say that, that, there's, that there's a king. 
which means that there is a, a power there, which we call Hashem, that's, that's telling this story, that's, that's informing everything, that there's a coherence to reality, that it's not just random. You know, I, I was just hanging out with someone the other day, and I was pointing out to him that, that those people who are so, um, who so love saying, oh, that's so random, or this is random, or that's random, like, how is it that, okay, so according, if you really want to embrace that, that point of view, like, you know, with, with gusto, right? So that means, randomly speaking, all these different energies and everything like that form the world around us, right? Because they just kept on smashing into each other until they made what's in front of us right now. And then once they made in front of us right now, which seems pretty good, it just stopped. <laughs> like, if you're going to embrace this idea of ongoing randomness, why did it just stop once like, like, like the shelf at Ralph's that holds like the Oreos? Why didn't that, why did it just remain flat? <laughs> why, why did the packages remain sealed? Why did the filling not fly out between the two cookies, right? Like, all of a sudden, everything just got like this and then just stopped. But, so, what I would suggest is things aren't random. That there is, again, this coherence. Okay, so that's Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur were saying, okay, I, I can do better. I can do better. And then God says, I want you to do better, and I'm going to give you another chance. Right? Like I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, I heard him say this at 79th Street before Yom Kippur. He said, imagine you've got like, a, a, this, you have a bank loan that's due and you can't repay it. Like, you know, that's, that's a really, really devastating situation for a person to be in. It's a bank. And then all of a sudden, you get a phone call. And you know, like people who are in a situation like that, I've heard this from people. They don't want to pick up the phone because it's another bill collector. It's, it's, it's terrifying even when the phone rings. You, you, you get up some energy and, and some strength and you pick up the phone and it, it, it's the bank. And the bank says, oh, by the way, your, your, your debt is canceled. <laughs> what? It's canceled. It's canceled. Why is it canceled? I'll tell you why it's canceled, because this is a metaphor and we're talking about God and we're talking about all our mistakes. That's why it's canceled. Right? That's, you know? But what could be realer than that? That's real. That's real. But that's how visceral the salvation of Yom Kippur is. So now you're in this narrative. You're in the middle of the story. You're in the middle of the story, right? And now it's sort of like you realize you've been just given a new chance at life, a new opportunity. Now comes Sukkot, and that's where we're at right now. And, 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 and we're in, again, just imagine like the, the curiosity, like just zipping through space, just zipping through space in this frictionless environment. Because what does it mean, a frictionless environment? What are we talking about right now? We're talking about your soul, our souls, are a piece of God, right? And if that sounds like a little bit like way out, you know, I always like to point out this, this point that, 
that you have, um, mathematically speaking, you have levels of infinity, right? Like, infinity is not just that, just that one grand number. Like, I always like to say that if you, if you asked me as a kid, what's infinity, I would have told you 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and it keeps on going. But there's an inf- there are infinite numbers between the numbers 1 and 2, which means that there are levels of infinity, which means that God, who is infinite, puts an aspect of his infinity within us. So that's a subset of God's infinity, but your soul is still infinite. It's, it's, it's not the full infinity of God, but it's nonetheless infinite. So, so, so what does a frictionless environment mean? Like, again, imagine that space rover and, you know, just going at billions of miles, right? In this frictionless environment. It means that that piece of God that's in you is operating in complete harmony with Hashem Yisbarach, with Hashem the Blessed One. And that there's no friction because there's no sin, there's no disconnects. And so there's, it just sails. You're, the infinite aspect of yourself is just sailing within the greater infinite. Infinity. So that's, when we can do that, so God asks us, after this process of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, God asks us, you ready for this? I'm using this phrase very deliberately, to live his oneness. Right? Now it's not just about acknowledging it or saying, I can do better. Now we're plugged in. We're pl- I mean, we've been, we're always plugged in. We're never not plugged in. But now to reveal fully the aspect of being plugged in and actually to, to live it. So we make, these, we make these houses. We make these houses and we sit and we spend time in these houses because what could be more real than that? What could be more real than that? I mean, that's super real. Okay, so now there's so many things about the, the sukkah itself which are bringing out this point. And I think maybe my favorite point about the, the sukkah in general is, and I, I think this is from um, uh, Rabbi Shimshin Rafoil Hirsch, who is you know, one of our great rabbis in the early 1900s in Germany, and he was one of the people who really helped save the Jewish people and keep the, the whole Torah tradition going in a very, very challenging time in history. Um, so he points out that this word, one, one of the special things that we read uh, on, on, on Sukkot is about this ap- apocalyptic battle between um, us and uh, Gog. Okay? Gogumagog. Right? That's, that's his name. By the way, that's, that's, that's his full name. That's not two people. That's, so Gog is, is Gimel um, Aleph Gimel. Okay? Gimel Aleph Gimel. Now, what's so cool about this is a bit of an aside. Rabbi Hirsch doesn't bring this, but we'll get back to him in a second. God willing. So, so Haman, right? It's, we're skipping ahead to Purim right now, but this is normally a Purim Torah, but, but it's, it's good for now also. So Haman, who's like from, is an Amalekite, and he's descended from Gog, right? 
how did he pick the day what would be most ripe to destroy that he hoped to destroy the Jewish people? So he was doing all sorts of magical stuff like black magic and rolling lots and dice and things like that. So trying to find the right date. And he was really happy when he found the 14th of Adar, right? Or the month of Adar. But anyway, so, so what's interesting about this word gog? Gimel, Aleph, Gimel. Because anyone who knows the way a uh, d- dice are constructed, the opposite ends on every side always add up to seven. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So, for instance, six will be on top, one will be on the bottom. Four will be on one side, three will be on the other, right? And then two and five. It's, it's, sevens, it's sevens all around. That's just the way that they're made, okay? So when you have Gog, Gimel is three. So that means that on the, on the bottom you would have four, right? Which is the letter Dalit. Okay, so we're going to spell a three-letter word right now. So you have Dalit. Then if you have Gog, the second letter is Aleph. That's one. Then you need, on the bottom, six. Six is the letter Vav. So Dalit, Vav. And then Gimel again. Gog is Gimel, Aleph, Gimel. Gimel is three. On the bottom, you've had four, which is Dalit. So, so when Gog is on top, Dalit, Vav, Dalit, which is David, as in David Amelech, as in King David, as in, as in like the Jewish messianic line, is on the bottom. So that's what he was looking for when you would get these, you know, this spelling of Gog on top. Because so, so, so Gog wants to be ascendant. Now, back to Rabbi Hirsch. Rabbi Hirsch says that, that Gog in, in Hebrew is the same root for the word roof. Now, now this is now we're getting you know, to the essence of sukkahs and what it means to live in a sukkah. A roof is, is the greatest sense of protection. Protection from the elements, right? And by the way, I heard, um, I heard this report a few years ago, and it, like, it blew my mind. It was about... Um, these really, uh, you know, emerging societies, or they were trying to modernize them um, in Africa. And they were, they were trying to see, like, if you gave these incredibly poor communities that were, I mean, I don't, the, the word primitive is, sounds very judgmental and pejorative and, 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 and wrong. So I, but if you, but, but, but for all intents and purposes, let's just call them primitive without any of the implications of that. Just, just really divorced from modern technology and modern society, right? That's what I mean by that. So, so this person had an idea, which is, what if you just gave them a large amount of cash? Like, you didn't have any agencies or anything like that. Like, what if we just give them cash? What would they do with the cash? And amazingly, the first thing that they did was they changed their grass roofs into metal roofs. As the first thing that they did, this was a, a, a recent thing, and you can dig it up online if you want to hear the actual report and all the details. Um, so, so because it's that sense of protection. 
But the way it's coming down with Gog being roof and everything like that, there, there are more sort of spiritual implications. And a, and a sort of like if you're living in Africa, they're, they're not doing anything wrong. We, we also <coughs> don't live with grass roofs during the year. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with them doing that. But, but just the idea is on a more spiritual level, and the reason why it's why Gog being roof is associated with sort of like the you know the, the the leaders of those you know basically you know who are trying to just you know destroy the world basically is there's a sense that if I'm under the roof I have protection from God and that I'm independent from God. And the sukkah is the complete opposite. The sukkah says you have to have the schach, those are the the, 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 the vegetative covering, right? The palm fronds or the bamboo or whatever it is, where you have to be able to, according to Allah, be able to see the stars through them so they can't be too thick and piled up. You still have to be able to see through it. So we are opting at this period to be like completely vulnerable. To live in vulnerability and we're saying, but that's to live in truth. To understand that 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 we we really are that 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 is our life that is our life. And after these days, after after Elul, after Rosh Hashanah, after Yom Kippur, you make it super real. You just you're sitting there in your sukkah. And, and by the way, it's, it's a very important critical element of this to understand that, that what is that period of time called? Zman Simcha Senu. The time of our joy. <laughs> right? Because there's joy in truth. There's joy in understanding that I can't lift my finger without God. There's actually joy that comes from that. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time just a totally heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing. And I was privileged, I think, I think it was only once to see it in my life. He says that when very young children, and, and I saw this, I saw this myself. When very young children, if you, if you like get mad at a young child, like if it's your child, do you know what the child does? He runs to you. But when a child gets a little bit older, you get mad at the child, and he can't run away fast enough. I remember, I, I, I can picture it in my mind as I'm telling it to you, I got mad at my first child and he, he ran into my arms. And, I, and so, so that's, the, that's the concept that after this relationship with God intensifies, you're running, you're running to God. You're running to God. You're running to embrace the truth, which is essentially our complete vulnerability. And that that's actually, that brings, that's something that brings you joy, is the acknowledgement of that. So, so there's a, a Torah, I, I, I always forget if it's the Ishbitzer or the Reb Leibel Eger. Um, Reb Leibel Eger was a student of the Ishbitzer, but 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 anyway, it, the, what, it, it it says that when Yaakov Avinu, 
when Jacob was able to finally part ways with with Lovin, um, and we say Kabbalistically speaking that Lovin is the incarnation of the snake from the Garden of Eden, right? And then becomes further incarnated as as Bilam. Okay, that's his line. So so he finally. We in Yaakov is called Israel, right? He gets that name Israel, which means this is all of us. So he finally is able to separate himself from the snake, right? From Lovin, from whatever energy that, 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 that means, right? The forces of negativity, the forces of death. He finally divorces himself from that. And that's all of us right now. What does it say? It says Yaakov built a sukkah, right? And... And it says he built it for his animals. You know, because I think that, that, you know, when we talk about, you know, our mind grasps these very sort of like high esoteric ideas. But our more animalistic nature, meaning, meaning to say the, that, that, that survival instinct, that, 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 that part of us that needs to eat, that needs to, you know, pay the rent and everything like that. What aspect of us most needs to be in the sukkah? Right? Like our mind kind of knows after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's been it's been refreshed, it's been strengthened. But there's still that part of us that 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 very you know, here and now kinda like gotta just it's hey guy, it's lunchtime. Like, where's the food, you know? It's like that, that part of us really needs to be in the sukkah. So it says that Yaakov Avinu built a sukkah and put his animals in. Which is very interesting because that he's elevating for all time that aspect of ourselves so that we should fully be able to experience God's guidance and be at, at, at peace with it on that most instinctive level, that most visceral level. But then Yaakov Avinu does something very interesting. And surprising, and this is this is what's being pointed out by by Reb Leibelager, the Ishbitzer, which is um, that he names the city after the sukkah, and and so the question is like, why do that? Because the whole idea, one of the one of the beautiful things about the sukkah is that it's 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 um, impermanent. It's impermanent. If you build a sukkah out of cinder blocks, it's not a kosher sukkah. It's, it's, you've got to express impermanence with your sukkah. And you know, it's funny because a lot of people, there are a lot of people who are into the whole Eastern kind of approach to life and, and the whole Zen Buddhist thing and, and all the rest. And, and I, I have to confess ignorance about it. Because I don't know much about it, but I know that they're into impermanence. And I also know that a lot of those people search for spirituality outside of Torah. And I can tell you that this notion of impermanence that is so beautifully expressed in the sukkah in the realest, most Jewish way that you can, that you can ever hope for, which is that while you're dwelling in that, that sukkah is an expression of your own body. Right? And we realize, you know, something just like this sukkah isn't around forever, at least on a physical level. And... My body is also not going to be around here for forever, you know. So, so one can sort of contemplate with joy their 
their own impermanence, right? Okay, now, now let's again get back to the Torah that I wanted to quote. So why does, he, why does Yaakov name this city after the sukkah? If the sukkah is about impermanence, if you name a city after something, that makes it permanent. So it seems to go against the idea. Because now you're saying, okay, this is the name of the thing, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving permanence to this thing. But the whole idea is impermanence. So this is what he says. He says, what Yaakov Avinu was doing was making permanent the idea of impermanence. <laughs> that we should forever exist with this consciousness that everything is fleeting. Right? So that we're not too tied to our fill in the blank. And again, if you're not too tied to something, if you're really tied to something, do you know what that is mathematically? That's the formula for friction. <laughs> right? Because I'm pressing up against something. I'm tied to it. That is friction. If I'm all of a sudden not tied to anything, which is the sukkah, then again I'm in this frictionless environment. Because what do I need to hold on to other than God? And that godliness within me is holding on to God and I'm seeing to the stars right through the schach. Like it's all so good. It's all so good. So I want to go over... Um, and by the way, just, just to say one more thing about sukkah before we change the subject. Um... You know, the, uh, there, there are Rebbe's who had uh, certain minhagim. I know in, it says, Reb Shlomo Brad in, in Bavov, they would hang 91 birds, right? So 91 is actually how the gematria of sukkah with a vav, okay? Sukkah is sometimes spelled with a vav, sometimes it's spelled without a vav, okay? So sukkah with a vav is 91, and, and those of you who have been keeping track of our 91s over the years, 91 is one of the great numbers in Torah because basically it means heaven and earth together, right? It's, it's two divine names, the Yud-K, Vav-K, which is 26, and Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud, which is 65, that adds up to 91. And basically that means God who is master within borders and master beyond borders, like both together. And... And by the way, I just saw another 91. Just, I saw a few more 91s. Okay, maybe I'll just fill you in on the latest 91s. Okay. <laughs> so, interestingly, and I think that this is definitely, as far as I know, unique in Psuke de Zimra. Those are the Psalms that we say leading up to the official opening of the prayer service of right before Baruch Hu, right? So, there's only one line if you don't have Kavana, if you don't have if you're not concentrating when you say this, you have to actually go back and say it. Like, I, I, it, I, I didn't realize that before, but that's the halacha. It's poseach et yedecha Right? God says, God, David Melech is describing God's beneficence and says that God opens up his hand and, and satisfies the desire, feeds every, every living being. Okay? By the way, I was once sitting at my kitchen table and I was unemployed. And I was saying, and how God feeds everyone. And, and, and I thought, is that really the case? 
right? Like, I haven't got a job. Is that really the case? And then I thought, well, first of all, I just ate lunch. <laughs> so let's, let's just start right there. You know? <laughs> and then I remembered something from, like, high school. Um, maybe with, I guess it was high school. Maybe it was junior high school. I don't know. It's science class. It basically says that when a person is not eating, that their metabolism or their body metabolizes like the fat and, and, and muscle in their own body. So even when a person is not eating, they are, and we're talking science right now, they are literally being fed at every single moment. So not, not only is that every human being in the world, but every bird and every bug. And you know, one of the last um, frontiers of exploration, on Earth anyway, is the, um, the, the, the ocean floor. The ocean floor is like, like everyone, like we don't even have any clue what's on the ocean floor. I mean, it's like a whole, like traveling to another planet and it's hard to get to because the pressure is so ridiculously intense. It's very hard to get all the way down there. But there are like volcanoes and landscapes and there are tons of species that every once in a while they find like a new species, you know? But if they went down further, they, there were, there's probably thousands, there's probably thousands of species down there that we don't even know about. So there is, there are creatures that no one in the world has yet to discover right now. We don't even know about it. If we didn't even have this conversation right now, we may have gone our entire life without even thinking about it. But right now, on the ocean floor, there's this species swimming around that God's feeding right now. <laughs> and, you know, like... One time I was looking at the phrase, and I, people make such a big deal about that I thought to myself, well, let me look at it. Maybe I'll find something in the words. I don't know. So I thought, well, what, what can I add to these words? You know. So I thought, well, let me just count the number of words and the number of letters. Right? So I counted the number of letters. It was 24. <laughs> Bless you. It was 20, 24 letters, and I counted the number of words, and it was 7. 24, 7. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, right? Which is what the Pasuk is saying, that it's, it's this ongoing process. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Okay, so now here are a couple of new thoughts. So, um, so the Ben Ishchai points out that, that one of the kavanas that a person should have is, is the, the first three letters of poseach et yadecha, poseach is pay, that's 80, et is aleph, that's 1, yadecha is 10, that's 91. Right? Again, heaven and earth coming together, the divine flow coming down from heaven to earth. Right? Um, the Noam Elimelech uh, points out that um, that one when 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 one eats um, that they should have the the the, the word machel in mind that's that means to eat 
right? So that's Mem, Aleph, Chaf, Lamed. And that's um, also 91. And he, he points out that it's 91, that that's the whole reason why you, you have that, 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 that word in mind. Again, this idea of 91 is heaven and earth together in this seamless flow, right? Okay. So, so now I want to just change the subject for a moment and just introduce a new idea. And just something that we talked about on Yom Kippur a little bit. And, and it, was, uh, it was meaningful to me, so I just want to just share it with you guys. So, so there's a Torah mitzvah if someone is drowning to actually to, to, to save their life, okay? And by the way, before we get into the depths of it, let me just say this just at the top. Um, and if you don't know how to swim, there's still the, 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 the mitzvah extends to find someone to even hire someone with money who can rescue that person. Isn't that interesting? And there are a couple of Torah commentators who say that once the person's life is saved, if you incurred an expense, they have to pay you back. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's halacha lamaisa, but that, it's interesting that they, that they go so far to figure out all the, all the um, actual financial details of, of, what that, of what that means. And by the way, just to pause and reflect on that for a moment. How great is Judaism <laughs> that, <laughs> that they say, not only do you have to save the guy, but if you can't swim, you have to hire the guy. And if the guy gets saved, he has to pay you back for your expenses and saving his life. It's so Jewish. It's so Jewish. And, it, and, and I don't mean it's so Jewish because we're talking about money, God forbid. It's so Jewish because listen to how much thought has been put into every single step of the process, seeing something through from the beginning to the end and trying to understand all of the human dynamics that are in play and resolving them in a coherent, harmonious fashion. Do, do you hear? That's what I'm talking about, how Jewish it is. I mean, it's really, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, we say Torah Chaim, that the Torah is a Torah of life. And when we say that, it's examples like this, and there are thousands of them that we're talking about. Um, so, so a person has a mitzvah to save a drowning person. Now, where, where do we get that mitzvah from? Like, where in the Torah, what verse in the Torah do we learn that you have to save a drowning person? And so, if you look in the Gomorrah, on page... 73a in Gomorrah Sanhedrin, okay? It says that the, 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 the verse, and it's surprising, it's surprising what the verse is. The verse is that you have to return a lost object. We have a mitzvah to return a lost object back to its owner. And so since the person at that moment is in the, is in the process of losing himself, Right? At that moment, you have a mitzvah to return him back to himself. That's just take a moment to contemplate that. Right? It's not, oh, we have a mitzvah to save a life. How awesome is it 
that the sages of the Talmud understood that the mitzvah that's in play at that moment is returning a lost object. It's amazing. That's amazing. And by the way, isn't it interesting that the body, because they're talking about the person's goof, isn't it interesting that the body is classified as an object at that moment? If you want to know who you really are, you are your soul, right? Because otherwise, how could the sages of the Gomorrah refer to your body as an object? So, anyway. So I wanted to, I wanted to extend this idea. I wanted to extend this idea, using this as a, you know, as a starting point. That at this time of year, and by the way, we should know that the, that the, the, the continuum that we're, that, we're, that we're in the process of right now, it's not sort of like, hey, you've got Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's heavy, and now we get a break. Sukkus. That's not it. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> it's one process. Do you understand? It's one process. We're still very much in this, in this flow right now. And if you wanted to sort of like put it in sort of like more sort of like classical, you know, uh, categories, right? You could call it Chuva Meira and Chuva Baba, right? which means returning to God from the standpoint of what's translated as fear, right? And now we're in this place, or awe, if you will, to this period where we're turning to, returning to God out of love. Okay? And you really need both of those aspects. Okay? Remember, Yira and Ava, fear and love, are called the two wings of the dove. And you need them both to fly, you know? And so, and by the way, if you want to do a litmus test, you know, like to, to do like a, a spiritual self-exam, right, on yourself, you want these two qualities to be like in sync with each other. And if you're lacking one, then you have to increase in the other. So for instance, just to give you an example, if you go... Um, you know what? So, I, I, it's, yeah, it was Shabbos 10 minutes ago, but I really like to light the candles, and so, it's okay, God loves me so much, he, he doesn't care. Okay, yeah, I understand technically it's Shabbos, but whatever, I, I want to light the candles. Okay, so that would be, at that moment, that would be a, a chesaron, meaning that a lack of year. I have to say, okay, you know what? Next week I have to be more on time. This is, this is not a joke. You know, I, I have to just organize my day better. That's, that's just the bottom line. Okay, so you need no more Yira. Okay, so now, let's say, let's use the, ex the same example. Let's say it's, um, it's uh, the next week comes, and it's now 10 minutes after Shabbos has started, and the person didn't light the candles again. And they're going to go, well, wait a second, I'm not going to make the mistake that I did last week. I guess I just can't light this week, as painful as that is. But I didn't light this week. God is going to zap me. Okay, so now at that, at that moment, the person needs more Ava. 
at that person, they have to feel God's love for them at that, at that moment. So this is a way that a person can course correct over the course of their life. And they have to look at their various deeds if they're missing the mark. By the way, um, I, re- I learned from Rabbi uh, David Aaron that in Israel, that when people play soccer today on the field, so this is modern Hebrew, okay? If someone misses the goal, right? They, they kick the ball and it goes wide. People will yell out, hate! Hate, no, hate! And we know after all of this, hate means like sin, basically. That's a word for sin. So they didn't, they didn't do a sin. Obviously, that's not what they're talking about on the soccer field. They're not talking about spirituality like, oh, because of your, you know, <laughs> if you put on tefillin, you would have gotten that goal. You know, they're not talking about that. They're just talking about the fact that they missed the mark, right? But that's, that's the idea that hate means that you're out of sync with the mitzvah. That's what, that's what, that means that you're either doing at that moment too little in your life or you're doing too much in your life. Right? Because a lot of times you kick the ball and it sails over the goal. So it's not a question of it's just, it's just too much. You know, you're doing just too much at that moment. Right? So, so, so how do we how do we adjust for hate in our life? When we're, we've, we've missed the mark, we've missed the mitzvah, whatever it is, the checkpoint. So either we have a little, too, too little or too much going on in terms of our understanding or whatever it is. And then we adjust. Do I need more gira? Do I need more a sense that, hey, the Torah is real. I got, I got to do this. Or do I need more love in my life at that moment to understand that, hey, you know, because, see, A lot of times people just give up because they don't understand how loved they are. If they understood how loved they were, they wouldn't give up. And it says that God loves each one of us as though we were his only child. Right? So can you imagine like God who can absolutely do anything. There's nothing God can't do. And he only has one child? And it's you? That's how we're supposed to think. Right? So, so, so you gotta, you've got to be able to receive that love. Okay. So now let's get back to this idea of returning a lost object. So, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, it's all one process, right? We have this mitzvah to return ourselves back to ourselves. We, because it's so easy to get lost over the course of our lives, over the course of the year. It's so easy for the best part of ourself to kind of wander away, right? And sometimes it's such a gradual process that you didn't even know that it was missing. And so, at this point, we have to ask ourselves, 
when was I at my best? When, when was I at my best and what was I doing when I was at my best? And maybe it's a sort of like a greatest hits collection. Well, you know, five years ago I did this. Two years ago I did that. Ten years ago I did that. Maybe clustering them all together and allowing yourself to experience yourself in the best, highest, most beautiful way. And say, wow, I've done all those things, which means I can do all those things, and that's the best version of me. Well, let me return that back to myself. I have a mitzvah to restore that back to myself. Now, now listen to this. The Chidush Rim says, points out something very beautiful with the shofar blowing process, remember? Remember, we're blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. We just blew it again on Yom Kippur, right? So the, the shofar is still very fresh, you know? So what, what is the shofar? When, when you blow the shofar, you're taking basically that most godly aspect of you, your inside, your, your soul, and you're making it manifest outside you, right? And he links that with the liberation of Yosef HaTzadik from prison. Because Yosef was freed from prison on Rosh Hashanah. And that's when we're blowing the shofar for the first time. Meaning to say, that greatest aspect, that greatest quality of ourselves is now becoming manifest. It's out there so you can find it. <laughs> and now, you know, on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is the light of Keter. It says um, who, that, that we are being before, purified before Hashem. Lefnei Hashem Titaru. Before Hashem you are being purified. Titaru is Gematria Keter. Alright, Keter is the highest, highest sphere in heaven. So it's the and, and, and remember when we, like, we always like try to make a, a map of the universe. You have Yud, and below that, Hey, and then below that, Vav, and below that, Hey. Hey, and we're going to get to this back to this in a moment. Hey, the bottom Hey represents this dimension, this world, right? So, but Yud is a very interesting letter. Yud is already at the top. But Yud is actually two parts, believe it or not. It may be one harmonious brush stroke, I'm not sure. But it's two separate ideas. There's the Yud part. And then there's the tip of the Yud, okay? The tip of the Yud is Keter, all right? Because you've got the four worlds, right? But then you've got the tip, which is Keter, right? That's above it all. And it's the light of Keter that's coming down. So in other words, how can I recognize my best self, right? Well, you've got the the best light in the world, right? The, The most beautiful shining light. And it's a light that I want to say is a light that illuminates, but it doesn't burn. Okay? And, and like we were talking about on Pesach, on Pesach, there's a very interesting halacha, which is that when you're looking for the breadcrumbs around your house, right? And remember, at Pesach time, because Pesach is all about matzah, which is not leavened bread, you know? That's what we're focused on at that point. We want to get rid of the unleavened, the, the leavened bread, right? Which is all puffed up and stands for, you know, ego and a, a sense of attributing power to ourselves that we, that we don't have. So you have to look for these last breadcrumbs by the light of a candle. 
And the halacha is very clear. It says that you can't look for the breadcrumbs by the light of a torch. Why? So I want to explain in the following way. Because if a person sees too much of their darkness, too much of their, too much of their um, lack, then they can just become destabilized. And they can, it can do more harm than good. So one candle is just enough that you can make forward progress without just frying your brains and falling into depression. So I want to say that the light of Keter, that the light of Keter, the light that's coming down right now, is the light of the sweetest, holiest candle that you can imagine. Not a torch. Not a torch. Not a torch. So we can identify ourselves and return ourselves back to ourselves because we have that mitzvah to return a lost object. Okay. So that's step one. To bring ourselves back to ourselves. But it's, 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 it's deeper than that. Because once we've restored ourselves back to ourselves, we have to give it back to our master, to our owner. Because <laughs> who do we belong to? We belong to God. So then we have to return ourselves back to God. But it doesn't just stop there. Because what did we say? We said that the word, that this, that this world, this whole realm, this whole dimension, that's the bottom hay of the yud Vavke, right? The word tshuva, all the rebbe's point out that tshuva means return, tashuv, hey. Hey stands for this world, tashuv, hey. Tshuva means to return the entire world back to God. Because the world has the status at this point of being a lost object. And we have to restore it back to its master, to its owner, right? But it says, but even deeper, right? It says in Shmos Rabbah that God also keeps the mitzvahs. So if, if, if God is keeping the mitzvahs, that means that if we're doing tshuva, that means that God is also doing tshuva. So what does that mean for God to do tshuva? So I want to give the following explanation. That tshuva means to return, right? That he should return back to a state of being totally revealed and not hidden. And now that we've gotten back to Sukkot, where we're in this frictionless environment because we have lots to do, not nothing to do, lots to do. We get to experience God on a level of being revealed in a way that's just, that's just so special and so unique. And, and again, not coincidentally, this time of revelation, isn't it interesting that it's called Zman Simchasenu, the time of our joy? Because, you see, Reb Shlomo, I heard him say one time that he used to daven every day that the world should know who the Jewish people are. And, and it's a beautiful prayer because the world doesn't, still doesn't know who we are. 
And wouldn't it be even more beautiful that the whole world should know who God is? Right? In addition. And what is that period called when the world knows who God is? The time of our joy. Like, that, that, like, like that, that's a fantastic thing. And that's the idea. That's the idea of running back to your father, right? Your mother, whatever it is. God's also called mother in Tanakh, right? Not just father. And best friend and lover, right? So that's that restoration of that relationship and appreciating and, and one can only take joy in the revelation of godliness if one understands the truth that God is good. See, I... Well, I'm not going to go there. Okay. So, so... So that's the time of our joy. That's, that's right now. And, and if we live our lives in a certain way, that, that, can, that can be forever. That can be every day of the year. And then there's no limits to levels within this level that a person can, can, can go on. Just imagine that spacecraft, right? It's right now. It's like another million miles and another million miles and another million miles in this frictionless environment because our souls can be in sync with God. And now we've just been sort of like, so to speak, chiropractically readjusted, <laughs> right? We're, we're, we're back in that fantastic place. And, and God willing, we should just like, just make impermanence permanent. Amen. Right? Just to hold on to, to, to just this joy. Okay, so there's, there's one final level to this idea of uh, returning a lost object. And that is, um, according to Halacha, if you were to find something that, uh, on the street, for instance, now the question is, does, does, is that found object yours? So, so, so it gets a tiny bit technical here. That depends on whether that object is what's called hefker or not which means kind of ownerless. So, so that status of whether something is ownerless will determine whether, whether when you find something, whether you can keep it or not. So interestingly, um, what defines ownerless? Because that will be, that, that, everything will go on how that word is defined, how that status is defined. Now this is where it gets very deep. Because ownerlessness is defined on whether or not the person who lost the object gave hope, gave up hope on ever regaining it. Um, let's say it another way. As long as a person maintains hope that they will still recover this object, then it's not called ownerless, then it still belongs to the person. So, so with this in mind, if, if we want to maintain ownership on that, on that lost quality of ourself, on that, 
on that best quality of ourself. If we want to return ourselves back to ourselves, we, we can't give up hope that we can still be that person and that we still deep down are that person and never stop being that person. And by not giving up hope, by, by maintaining hope, we retain a claim that that still belongs to us, that that, that that best quality of ourselves is still ours. And that goes for the world too. So, and for God too. So, so to put it all together and just to, to be able to, to, to return everything, the best quality of ourselves, not, not to give up hope on the world, and, and most importantly, never to give up hope on God.